0: The words that I saw in that top thousand and I had no idea that those would be considered frequently used words in German. There is not one article of clothing in the top thousand words and there's always a whole chapter on articles of clothing and a whole chapter on foods, all of which can be useful. They should be learned at some point and they're easy to learn later on and you need to learn them. They're not in the top thousand. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This
1: week on Speaking of Language. Jamie Rankin of the Princeton Center for Language Study follows up on his recent talk at Cornell regarding new research in teaching and learning L2 vocabulary.
2: Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University.
1: And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. Jamie Renken is joining us for today's episode.
2: Dr. Renken is the director of the Princeton Center for Language Study and co director of the language program in the German department at Princeton University.
1: He gave a talk as part of our monthly LRC speaker series titled, How Can I Learn All These Words? Research-Based Strategies for Teaching and Learning L2 Vocabulary.
2: You can watch the full talk on our YouTube channel, and we are excited to extend our conversation here today.
1: Welcome to Speaking of Language, Jamie. Thank you.
2: So, Jamie, before we dive into your talk, can you please share with our listeners a little bit more about your background and your path with languages?
0: My path with languages, I'm ashamed to admit that I took two years of Latin in high school and learned nothing. Some of that, that I'm sure, is my fault. Some of it was the teacher's fault, but probably mostly my fault. And I'm I'm very sorry. I regret today that I cannot read Latin or speak Ah. Latin, for that matter. So um, it was when I got to college and I began taking German as a sophomore. And in fact, I started taking it because there was a language requirement. I, I might mm-hmm. not have taken it otherwise, but I was interested in German music. I studied music. That was my my major, was piano performance. So I studied um, music, wanted to learn more about German composers. I loved mm-hmm. Johann Sebastian Bach, Beethoven, Liszt, uh, Brahms, and yeah. so I decided on the basis of that, and because I had heard that the German teacher was quite good, that I would take German. So uh, I went to the class really just to fulfill the requirement but found immediately that I was fascinated with the the grammar, with learning vocabulary, with the the opportunity to express different things with a different language. Um, I'd always been interested in grammar. Even as a grade school student, I would diagram sentences, Hmm. think about how sentences worked, how things related to each other. And as speakers and readers of German know, uh, German is a very syntactically complex but predictable language in many ways. And so this, this really did fascinate me. I, Latin is also that way. Yeah. Uh, I really am sorry that I, I didn't learn how to, to read Latin. But that's that's how it started as a sophomore in college. It's fairly late compared to some people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it also gives me the ability to empathize with the students that we're teaching here because I know what it feels like to be at that age starting out with a new language. Yeah.
1: In your talk, you discussed some important aspects of L2 vocabulary acquisition. Can you please recap the role that vocabulary plays in L2 textbooks?
0: That's, that's a very interesting and fraught question because that role, the role <laughs> of vocabulary, has changed over the past couple of decades quite mm. a bit.
1: Um, sure.
0: In some, and, and it really depends on the kind of textbook. You have some textbooks that are based on a traditional grammar translation approach, You have some textbooks that are meant to align themselves with uh, Krashen and Terrell's natural approach. Mm -hmm. These all treat vocabulary differently. But in general, I would say, and I I know the German market the best, of course, in general, I would say that vocabulary plays a subsidiary role um, in in service of talking about cultural topics Mm -hmm. and in the service also of being able to instantiate the grammar. There'll be a a grammar example and you need vocabulary to fill the slots in that. And so, you know, you have vocabulary that will be useful, but I would say mostly within the last 10, 20 years, it's, it's uh, vocabulary words that the authors feel will be useful in discussing, talking about that cultural topic.
2: That's so interesting. Um, what do you think about the, the role that if you connect vocabulary to communication?
0: Uh, if you connect vocabulary with communication, well, I mean, this in part is is at the basis of what I've tried to do with the textbook that we're developing here. And that is
2: yeah.
0: communication requires that you're able to use the words that are used in the target language. And so what you need to learn are the words that are most commonly used. And so mm-hmm. this idea leads directly to the concept of, of focusing, in particular, on the high-frequency words in any language. And what we have found, not what we have found, uh, what other researchers have found, notably Silke Lipinski, who wrote in Unterrichtspraxis about high-frequency vocabulary as it appeared in several of the American German college textbooks, uh, you find that the words that are in the first-year textbooks bear only a slight resemblance to what people actually use as they're talking and writing. So that when you encounter authentic texts, you're not really learning all of the vocabulary, as much as the vocabulary, as you should be learning. And so if, if the goal is to help people communicate, and that would be to interact with other speakers or to interact with a text... They need to be focusing on the vocabulary that they will actually encounter in that case.
2: Mm -hmm. What other findings were there in L2 vocabulary research that can help inform classroom practices? Any other important nuggets that stood out to you as you've been doing research on this topic?
0: Uh, Well, the the research that that I did, and I will not say I did exhaustive research on it, I did what I could uh, for a very particular goal, and the goal was to be able to create a a curriculum that was more focused on high-frequency vocabulary. But what I noticed as I looked into this was that there were sort of two camps. On one side, in one camp, you had people looking at high-frequency vocabulary and specifically then the relationship of that vocabulary with text coverage. Text being, I mean, broadly defined as, as written text, but also kind of the text of interaction and spoken discourse.
1: Mm-hmm. And so
0: they would, they would look to see the percentages of texts that were being covered by bands of a thousand uh, based upon their frequency in the language. So all that research has been going on ever since the 1930s and mm-hmm. exponentially within the last 20 years. And on the other side, in another camp, you have people who are writing textbooks and are choosing, I won't say randomly, but they're choosing the things that they think might be useful for talking about a particular cultural topic. But when you compare what they are doing in, in choosing this vocabulary with what's being looked at in terms of high frequency and the coverage that it offers, you see a real, a glaring disparity. Mm-hmm. And to me, this is this very, very interesting. In the article that I, 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 I cited by Lipinski, Um, the textbooks that she looked at covered between sort of the low 500s and the low 600s in terms of the first 1,000. And and we know from the research in this first camp that knowing the top 1,000 words in any language is absolutely critical. It gives you 70 to 75% coverage of just about any contemporary text. So if you're not learning those... If you're not teaching those to your students, it seems to me you're you're doing your students something mm-hmm. of service because they're not learning the vocabulary that they actually will encounter as they try to read.
1: Yeah. So talking about these findings, uh, how can they help inform assessment?
0: How, how can they inform assessment? I would say that if you have chosen to teach high-frequency vocabulary, it's not only that you choose which words to teach, to me, that's the, the, the first uh, important thing. The second thing is, is how you teach them. And uh, this is another thing that I've noticed about the, the commercial textbooks, at least the ones that are available in the U.S. right now. They, they will introduce the vocabulary that they've chosen to introduce one time, usually, and it comes usually on a page someplace in the chapter. It may be broken down into multiple pages within a chapter. These words appear there, they might appear in some of the texts that are given or in some of the audio files that are provided online, but very often because they're so specific to the cultural topic, they're not given again. And so the students, if they pick them up, may remember them for that particular topic and then they're forgotten. Hmm. But it seems to me that the textbooks, a good textbook should be repeating the non-cognitive, the non cognate vocabulary often over the course of the textbook. They're going to recur in natural language anyway, but you can help that process along by repeating them. And this means then that for testing, you should be testing the vocabulary in a way that tests the long range memory of, of uh-huh. the students. Do they, do, have they actually taken these words in? Can they use them productively? I would also say based on the research here that you need to be testing vocabulary in at least two ways. You need to be testing for size, which is what we normally do, and how big is your vocabulary. Sure. But you also need to be testing for depth. And mm-hmm. that would be how much do how much do the students know about a given word? Do they know how to pronounce it? Do they know the collocations that go with it? Do they know the register that you would want to use it in sociolinguistically? Do they know how often it comes up? What's its normal frequency? There are certain words that you might use very effectively, but if you use them too often, then they come across as stilted. And so all these things about uh, word usage and word depth should be part of the testing program. For us, in our beginning German program, we are testing mostly for size, but it seems as you get more advanced in a language that it would be wise to be testing for depth as well while still expanding the vocabulary size. And as for size, we we would go along with the, the researcher Basia Laufer in suggesting that the the basic basic threshold for vocabulary knowledge, so that you can read with moderate fluency, would be about two to three thousand words, mm-hmm. the two to three thousand most frequent words. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're aiming for.
2: So you already alluded to the textbook that you developed, um, given all of the research, you know, that that has been done and that you have been doing into uh, vocabulary acquisition. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit more about this online textbook, Deri Das, um, exactly what. how are you presenting the content now and how is that different from some of the more traditional commercial textbooks?
0: We, uh, well... We wondered at first, could you even do this? So I, yeah. you know, I, I got a hold of the 2006 edition of the Jones-Chandler Frequency Dictionary by Routledge. There's, there's a newer edition, but the one that we, the, the curriculum that we developed was based on the first edition. Um, and I looked at the words, and I should mention that I was astonished for two reasons as I looked at the top thousand words there. Yeah. One were the words that I saw. In that top thousand, and I had no idea that those would be considered frequently used words in German. Hmm. Yet, you know, as, as I've looked at texts and sort of compared the texts that I look at, authentic texts for native speakers, I see that it's true. And, and these are the words that are used, but I, I know that these are the words that I didn't learn as a non-native hmm. speaker. Until ten to fifteen years after I started. In other words, I, oh, I would have been wow. well served to have learned these words a lot sooner than I did. Hmm. Um, that's the one thing I was surprised by what was in it, and then I was also surprised by what was not in it.
1: Hmm.
0: There is not one article of clothing in the top thousand words. <laughs> yeah. The word for shirt, "das hemp that doesn't come up until fourteen hundred at least, at that's least in so the first edition. And, yeah. and of course, that is just as one example. You think about the kinds of semantic sets that come up in commercial textbook, and there's always a whole chapter on articles of clothing, yep. a whole chapter on foods, yep. um, a whole chapter on buildings in a city, or mm-hmm. what's in your room, all of which can be useful. Sure. But in fact, they, they should be learned at some point, and they're easy to learn later on, and you need to learn them, but they're not in the top thousand. Mm-hmm. If we're going to serve our students well, I thought. I thought, well we should try to, to teach those along with other words that students might want to know, like articles of clothing and sure. what's in their room. So the, the reason, uh, the, the way that, that this textbook differs from others in that it, it focuses really on what we call the, the, the core vocabulary, the Kernvotschatz. And that is strictly strictly from the top 1,000. In fact, we use the top 1,200 just because mm-hmm. of the number of chapters and uh, sure. the, the number of words per chapter. And those are all highlighted in the book. Uh, because the book is totally online, they are also um, attached to audio files, so you can click on the word and hear it spoken. That way you get multiple modalities, which we mm-hmm. you know from the research is helpful for helping students memorize and learn these words. Um, it also spreads the words out throughout the chapter, so that each chapter has four subchapters, and each subchapter, subtopic, there is one list on average of 20 words. And so we, we don't present the students with a list of 100 words all at once, mm-hmm. which is what one of the commercial textbooks actually does. And it's pretty overwhelming. Yeah. It's more like a dictionary, really, than a list of words that they really need to know. And, and I should say that that um, by, by introducing 1,200 words over the course of 16 chapters, we're, we're giving them, our students, the smallest active vocabulary, I think, of... Of any program out there, all the other books have 1,600, 1,800, one of them over 2,100 words. The problem is that those say 2,100 words, at least half of them are way beyond the 3,000 or 4,000 mark, which means that these are words that the student will see once in one chapter and then probably never see again. And so, effectively, what the students are learning from some of these other books, if the words are repeated, are five to six hundred words and so we feel that by introducing twelve hundred words but really working on them focusing on them they they are repeated over the course of the book they are highlighted as i said with audio files um, they appear embedded and in list format we do everything we can strategically to hope uh, to help the students learn these words effectively
2: so how do you group the vocabulary, then, in your book? Obviously, you will not have a chapter on clothing.
0: <laughs> That's right. Well, we have a chapter on fashion, but it's all about okay, ideas okay. about fashion. But we don't, and, and we do give some words about clothing. Sure, sure. And that has more to do with these really serious issues about why is this, is Why why are the traditional clothes so popular right now, right, in our current cultural moment? things that would have been unthinkable, say, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, so, yeah, we, we look at it from a different perspective, but we, 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 don't, uh, yeah, we don't have a long list of, of articles of clothing. However, this, this brings up a really interesting point to me from the research, and, and the research on vocabulary and learning vocabulary suggests, uh, based on, on good studies that have been done, that semantic sets are not as effective for learning and teaching as thematic sets. Thematic mm, mm-hmm. sets mm-hmm. are the sets under under a rubric such as colors or the days of the week or articles of clothing and or you know foods that you might want to eat for dessert. And so there'll be a list of things under that rubric. And this is the way most commercial textbooks yep. uh, provide uh, their vocabulary, which seems to make sense. It always had made sense to me until I was looking at this research, which showed that Depending on the language, depending on the first language of the students, depending on the target language that you have, this can be quite confusing. Students will remember that a word is in the list, but they may not have a very strong path between that particular word and the target word that they're going for. And so thematic sets, where you provide vocabulary in order to talk about a topic or a theme or an activity, is actually a better way of teaching learners vocabulary in a way that makes sense from from a narrative perspective. They can use these words to talk about something. So just as an example, um, if you had the theme of going to a cafe, you would include words such as door, open, sit down, order, friend, Mm -hmm. conversation, words that probably wouldn't come up in a semantic set, but they are things that you would use if you're talking about going to a cafe with somebody. And so that's that's the way we introduce the vocabulary. It's in sets based upon the theme that's, that's, that's uh, in play in a particular subtopic. And then we want students to learn those in order to be able to talk about the theme from their own perspective or from a German perspective. Great. Gotcha. Uh,
1: so what has the feedback been like from students and colleagues so far?
0: Uh, I'd say, you know, with... Some exceptions, but not many, uh, students have really enjoyed using it. Um, they, they find that uh, it, it helps them to learn the vocabulary that they, they want to learn. Students at, you know, at any institution are busy and have lots of things on their plate, mm-hmm. and they want to know that what they're studying makes sense. And I, I know our students in the past have expressed frustration at being given this list of words yeah. seemingly random lists yeah. and being told, you need to learn these words, right? Mm-hmm. And they will think to themselves, but do I really need to learn these words? Because they're just not going to come up again. We let our students know at the very beginning of the course, and, and they get evidence of this as the course goes on, that the words they are learning, if they really work at learning them, are going to pay off. Mm-hmm. And so there's a sense of efficiency and effectiveness in presenting these words in particular. Uh, by uh, they, 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 I won't say by which date they can do this. That that wouldn't work sure. for every student. But um, they can look at headlines. They can read first paragraphs of articles in authentic media and begin to get the sense of what's going on. And they're really excited that even after a couple of chapters,
2: mm-hmm. they're
0: learning things that they can actually use. So we feel like the, that response has been good.
2: What advice would you give to a colleague who wants to focus more on high-frequency lexical items without abandoning the textbook that they currently use?
0: That's that's a good question because you know not everybody would want to use what we have or would be able to use it. And I've, I've thought about this. I thought at first, as I was doing the research, maybe we could take this list of a thousand words and try to integrate this in some way into the commercial textbook that we were using. In other words, we'd go through, I would go through the vocabulary list in the book, yeah. and and pick out the ones that happened to be in the top thousand, strike out some of the ones that I felt weren't really that important, and then add to the list. That might be a way of doing it. Um, it, it would take so, a, lot a lot of, time, of work right, yeah. a lot of time to figure yeah. out what you would add and what you would take away. But you could be sure, that if your students were learning something from that top thousand, they were learning words that would push them in the direction of further literacy. Um, but that's only one part of it. That's that's the question of which words. And as I said before, it's not just that. It's, it's how they're taught in class, how often they're repeated.
1: Mm-hmm. How
0: often do you go back to these words, chapter after chapter? And I suppose... If you, were, if you were able to give them the right words by intertwining the top thousand with the current vocabulary, these words would be the words that would, would, that would come up again and again as you were looking at real texts, mm. authentic texts, having students do things online, yeah. as you were speaking naturally. Just in natural discourse, these are the words that would come up.
1: Where can our listeners learn more about your work, Jamie?
0: Uh, the... <laughs> The textbook itself is all online, so I can't, you know, I can't point to anything on Amazon. If <laughs> listeners are interested, they're certainly welcome to write to me. The email address is just jrankin, the letter J, my last name Rankin at princeton.edu, and uh, I'll be happy to grant access to the uh, to the curriculum if people are interested in looking at it.
2: Wonderful. So, Jamie, before we sign off, we'd like to ask you to share your favorite word in a language you speak, you love, you are learning, you want to learn. Let's hear it.
0: Ah, my favorite word. This is the word that I always tell students in my German class. That is my favorite word. I just like the way it sounds. And that's the word in German for, uh, for squirrel, which we have many of on our campus. And the German word for squirrel is... It has all these soft sounds that are fairly difficult to make for some non-native speakers. Uh, But I just love the word Eichhörnchen, das Eichhörnchen.
2: I do too. That's a good one.
1: (laughs) Well, great. Thank you so much for speaking of language with us, Jamie.
0: You're very welcome.
2: Next week, we will speak with Brandon Lanners and Gustavo Flores Macias from Cornell's Office of Global Learning about international student inclusion. Until then, auf Wiederhören!
0: The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or look for Cornell LRC on Facebook and Twitter.
2: Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz,
0: recorded by Sam Lupowitz, original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson.
2: Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University.
1: As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University.
0: We thank our listeners and do stay tuned for our next episode.